Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Kirsten Holder with Metro Family, and I am joined by Steve Hodges, MD, a pediatric urologist who is here to talk about kids and bedwetting. Welcome, Dr. Hodges. Thank you so much for joining me today. And thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yes. Before we dive right into the questions that everybody is just dying to know, I'd love to give a little background on you. Steve Hodges, MD, is a nationally recognized and board-certified pediatric urologist. He is currently an associate professor of pediatric urology at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Hodges earned a BA from Duke University and an MD from Wake Forest School of Medicine, where he also completed his residency in urology, followed by a fellowship in urology at Children's Hospital of San Diego. His work can be seen in numerous publications, such as Huffington Post, Slate, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and so many more. So I'd love to just start out with a really broad question. What do you see are the most common myths about bedwetting? Yeah, and this is honestly the hardest part about dealing with bedwetting is because the appearances can be deceiving, you know. So what parents or, or other doctors even, honestly, see when they see bedwetting children are the obvious things. There's a child that's just laying in a pool of urine, right? So two things that they typically notice are the amount of urine. So it appears as though they're making just too much, too much pee. It can't be that much. They, that can't be normal because they're sitting in the puddles. You know, parents will say there's puddled urine in the sheets. And, and then the, that ties into the second thing is why aren't they waking up? You know, how can someone sleep through this? They're a very deep sleeper. They're hard to wake up. They're hard to arouse. And so that that component of just making too much urine in general and the sleeping too deeply are the two, two main myths that we struggle to fight against in treating bedwetting. Mm. Yes, and you've, I'm sure, heard those things so often, including my child has been potty trained for months, for years, but they're still having issues with bedwetting, even though the child might not have accidents during the day. And like you mentioned, we, we assume the most common reasons are the deep sleeping. Um, maybe they're not developmentally ready to stop using a pull-up. So I'd love to hear a little bit more on your thoughts on those reasonings that we tell ourselves as parents. Do you agree with that reasoning? And while each child is certainly unique, what do you see as the most common reasons for bedwetting? Yeah, so I personally, I mean, it's controversial slightly, but I don't think that um, urinating while unconscious is normal. I don't think it's uh, physiologically uh, normal for anybody, so at any age. So, you know, the you can have variations in terms of how old the child it needs to be to get to the bathroom on their own at night if they were to wake up, you know, because if you have a child in a crib that's scared to leave the room, then they may wet, they may wet themselves just because they have no option. But if I'm, we're discussing kids that are voiding while unconscious, then I, I think there's two important things to keep in mind. Number one is that everyone that is mature enough to wake up to urinate wakes up to urinate. It doesn't matter how sleepy you are. Uh, you can be passed out from a long night of working like when I was a resident or you could have guzzled a huge um, Gatorade or something right before bed or, or my father who's got a large prostate has to get up at night. You know, you're, you're aroused because those signals all go to your brain um, and that's how adults uh, urinate. Infants, if anyone that's had child know, child knows, uh, they, they void by spontaneous reflex. So they're just in – you could be changing their diaper and They'll just start peeing and be completely oblivious. They're just staring at the at the mobile or something. We and love so, when that happens. <laughs> everywhere, we're changing diapers. Right? And they don't even know it's happening. Right? So 
that, that pattern shifts at some point to the adult pattern, but it's not a on-off switch. So as you're transitioning and as you age and you potty train during the day, there is some persistence of this infant reflex. And you know as a parent that there's a lot of reflexes kids have that go away, like um, when they reach for the uh, uh, milk or when the way they grasp onto things. There's a lot of infant reflexes that, that slowly taper. And this reflex voiding is another reflex. And so all bedwetting is is a persistence of that reflex that's set off. Um, and in older kids, and that can be normal up to, you know, two, three, four. But if it's persisting in children that should otherwise be able to wake up and get to bed, it's always uh, persisting due to uh, abnormal rectal dilation from constipation. And we'll get into that. But that's basically what it is. It's a persistence of an infantile voiding reflex due to um, uh, fecal uh, fecal fecal impaction. I, I hate to say constipation because that implies certain things, but basically kids that aren't emptying their poop in a timely fashion. If that if that makes sense. Yes, and I'd love to know more about that. Um, I do want to talk about bedwetting remedies that maybe do more harm than good before we get to solutions. If you don't sure. mind. Yeah, totally. Um, so a lot of us that grew up, you know, we we were maybe taught a certain way to stop bedwetting um, or maybe saw our siblings do it a certain way, our friends. So some of those that, that you suggest might do more harm than good are um, giving rewards, you know, like a sticker system or, or a treats or something for not bedwetting. Um, maybe leaving kids in the wet sheets or other, you know, punishments that might be a little cruel, limiting liquids, holding urine to strengthen their bladder, waiting for them to just outgrow it. Um, some of those techniques admittedly sound a little archaic. Others might feel harmless um, to us, but I'd love to hear from you what each of these, you know, may or may not be helpful um, in a situation where a child is too old to be bedwetting and yet still is. Yeah, and I think those first uh, few you mentioned all uh, are imply um, that the child has some kind of agency involved in the bedwetting, you know? So if you, if you, um, um, make them, you know, some parents will make them change their sheets or make them uh, feel it. They take them out of pull up so they feel wet or they'll make them um, something. It all imply or rewards. It all imply that if you just want it bad enough, you know, you'll be dry. And so, as we mentioned earlier, this is a reflex. It's not something that happens. Uh, and it happens when they're unconscious, so they can't control it. So I, I hate to lead into that, even if it's well-intentioned with rewards, because you could say there's nothing wrong with rewards. But then the flip side of that is the punishment, which we see all too often. Um, incontinence in children is a very, it's a leading cause of child abuse. And so I really try to focus on my work uh, to stress the fact that this is not something under the child's control. So we focus on the real causes so we can get it fixed and everyone can be a lot happier. And then the waiting to outgrow it is honestly reasonable, except that you don't know when they will outgrow it. And after the age of five, in which about a quarter of the kids wet the bed, about 15% get better a year. And for most people, that's fine. But, you know, I, I see college kids that are wetting bed. And I could not imagine, you know, 15 years of, of changing sheets uh, uh, and, and something that would be otherwise tr treatable. And so we really try to treat them pretty aggressively, but I never push the treatment. You know, if a family is fine to kind of always bring up that the treatment shouldn't be worse than the disease. So if wetting bed at five is not a big deal and, and they don't want to do our treatment protocol, that's fine. But waiting to outgrow it is, uh, it's, it's gambling a little bit. 
Mm, yeah, I can see that point. And I'm sure there are some parents listening, thinking I cannot do another middle of the night wake up call changing sheets. I don't have any sheets left in my house to be changing. It's a lot of laundry. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of laundry on top of laundry we already have. So um, yeah. I'll be interested in hearing more about that. Are there any tools or items out there on the market? It seems like when you're shopping for, you know, baby, toddler, adolescent, tools and tricks there's so many out there are there any you like or any specifically you don't like when it comes to alerting a child about the need to wake up and go to the potty so they're all a series of bedwetting alarms which i think are very reasonable because they're harmless um and what they do is they try to drive that reflex as we talked about there's two kind of ways to avoid the one sacral reflex and then the other is the or the infantile reflex and then the adult pattern they try to drive you to the adult pattern so it, it, it recruits the brain every time you have to urinate asleep it, it makes sure you're aroused so it's kind of pushing that signal that way and it's about the, the success rates vary so much you, you read numbers from 30 percent which is placebo to 60 percent but it has i compared it to like a, a new year's resolution that people give up on these things so easily because it's very difficult to wake up with them but I do think it's much better than just randomly waking up a child because if you wake them up with the even though they've already wet when they set the alarm off it does build this pattern that could be useful and there's anecdotal stories of cures of kids being cured with you know a one night with the alarm or a month with the alarm so it definitely can direct children to avoid uh, to wake up to, to avoid but doesn't allow them typically to sleep through the night. They typically do have to wake up to pee. Um, in terms of bedwetting alarms, there's so many variations. There's some that are clip-on, there are mats. I don't necessarily um, promote or, or recommend any brand, but I do think if you have a well-reviewed um, alarm that's not too expensive that works well with your family, that I think they are harmless. But uh, like anything else we'll talk about, the more there's a component of constipation or, or overactive bladder, the less effective it will be or more difficult will be to be dry with uh, ancillary measures. So what I'm hearing you say is it might be worth a try, but it may not get to the root of the problem. Yeah, and you know what I exactly what I also like it. Sometimes I use it in my clinic as a kind of a poor man's urodynamics. So urodynamics is a test we do in the clinic where we measure bladder function and you see how much the bladder can hold and how um, when you when you void how much volume you void. So if you use an alarm and you notice that it goes off every two hours or early in the night, then you know you're much further from being dry at night than if it were to go off at five or six in the morning, if you follow my logic. Mm -hmm. So uh, sometimes it does not only can be provide curative uh, effects, but it also can provide um, kind of diagnostic or, or data that you can use in, in care of the child. That's a great point. Yeah, that's and that's something good to think about as you're as a parent, you're trying to gather all these reasons why. <laughs> when yeah. Talk to a specialist like this. So these are good things to keep in mind as we're trying, you know, different techniques. So finally, I do want to talk to, about how constipation or um, another way that you put it um, might affect potty training in general, but specifically bedwetting. Yeah, so this is the important thing to keep in mind because I, I really hear what you're saying because I see it so often where, where parents are ready to pull their hair out because they did everything. They held the water before dinner they had him pee before bed and the child peed like twice in the bed you know it's just if you if you use like pure um just what your parents think here it'll drive you crazy you have to just remove all emotion and just follow kind of the algorithm it, it does help so think of it this way if if there were not a, a component of constipation because a lot of parents say um you know my child's pooping normally then there would be no way for the child to 
pee while asleep, right? They would, if they, if they made too much urine, um, um, they would just wake up, you know? And again, the deep sleep thing, we can get into more, but when they actually studied it, they found that it wasn't that the children's sleep was disrupted. It was that the bladder spasming, it wasn't that the, the sleep disruption affected the bladder. It was the bladder affected the sleep. So not only if you fix the root cause here, uh, will you improve the bedwetting, but you'll get better sleep. So in short, and anyone that's ever had a child could understand this, kids put off pooping, right? Every every child has a, has a component of that. And it's a very human behavior. I most, I mean, can't think of another animal that does this, you know, volitionally. Um, but it's, we're too smart for our own good. So if we're in the middle of something or we don't like the way it feels, we'll just squeeze our sphincter, put off the pooping. And then the urge to poop goes away. And we reset that to a larger diameter of the, of the rectum. So whatever we thought our, our body thought was full for the rectum, now we're telling it that's not full. So then it has to get more full to give us that signal. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine only a few um, months of this and you're, you get your colon pretty much, I mean, your pelvis pretty much full of poop. And so what happens is they're not getting the urge to pee until very late, uh, to, to poop until very late. And that stretched rectum is stretching the nerves to the bladder, which go to the spinal cord and that sets off that reflex. So basically that stretched rectum keeps that infant avoiding reflex intact. Mm -hmm. And this has been proven like the best study was done by Dr. O'Regan in the 80s, where he took bedwetting children, measured their rectal dilations, showed it was dilated, measured their bladder function, and showed it was overactive. He then emptied the rectum with therapies, rechecked the bladder study, and it was normal. Hmm. And what throws people off on this is that it's very genetically there's – there's a large ver genetic variation in this. In some children, about a third, rectal dilation causes bladder overactivity which typically presents as bedwetting. And another third, it doesn't affect the bladder at all. So you could have your classmate worse constipation and he's fine. And then in another third, it makes the bladder less overactive or, or underactive. So that's called lazy bladder syndrome where these kids, oh, you know, their parents love to take them on a trip because they never had to pee the, the whole the whole way down. But then maybe they worry about that. But, you know, no one comes to the, very few people come to the urologist saying my child doesn't pee enough. Mm -hmm. And so we end up seeing these bedwetting kids and, and it messes up because parents will say, well, I have three other kids. They, they have a hard time pooping in this one. Why is this one wetting the bed? Um, but when you break it down into the, the genetics and, 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 and x-ray them and figure out what's going on, you always find the association of bladder erectivity and rectal dilation. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. I feel like there's so many questions that many of us <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> can even come through out of that. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask a question, you know, how, how do you even know if your child is constipated? Let's say you have a child that poops once a day, you know, around that, um, and you say, oh, they, they've emptied um, their intestines, they're done, um, but they're still bedwetting. Do you, do you see that often? Or how do you, I guess, how do you, what are the signs besides bedwetting that a child might be constipated? So yeah, the, the term constipation is pretty loaded because it means so many different things to other people. So I try to focus on the symptoms. So let's take bedwetting alone. If if you if a child is bedwetting and assuming they're otherwise healthy, then they're most likely constipated in terms of our definition, meaning they've delayed emptying of the rectum such that when they do empty now, they don't empty all the way. Um, and, and that's best diagnosed, honestly, with x-ray because a lot of parents come in with normal habits. In terms of constipation in general, like what we – most parents consider constipation, which is not pooping daily or pooping hard, hard rare poops, having a difficult time, then that's kind of obvious. There's a couple of medical – medical um, 
kind of questionnaires that can guide you through that. But in terms of like, if you have a child that's not wetting the bed and they're pooping uh, enough for you and they're not having any complaints, then that's fine. But, you know, belly pain is a common ER visit and it's almost always constipation, um, kind of just bloated, um, passing very large bowel movements. That's always a warning sign. If you look at it and say that that's the biggest poop I've ever seen, you know, the, the reason that's so big is because they've kind of packed it in and they're trying to now pass this huge, abnormally large poop. Um, chronic diarrhea, any kind of GI complaints. I think it's worth, it's such a common problem. I think it's the most common medical problem in children. That's worth a simple x-ray or an exam to work up. Um, so definitely keep your uh, antenna out for that and uh, really watch how they do, you know, when they're, when they're developing, you know, kids almost always do really well um, on breast milk or formula, but the moment you change things up, whether it's rice cereal or whole cow's milk or table food, antibiotics even, if you change the consistency of the poop, whether it be too loose or too hard, it throws them off and, and, and their brain can't handle it and they just start reacting by, by holding. Sure. And you mentioned this in your explanation too, that sometimes that holding can start stretching and pushing on different things down there. And if any of our listeners are parents of preschoolers, chances are they butt heads with their child over potty refusal. And you did touch on this. Initially within my own home, I thought this might be a move to test boundaries and control. Um, but you're thinking it's, it's a sign of a medical issue that might need an x-ray or further examination. Yes, yeah, so there's different kinds of potty refusal, and, and the most common is um, is pooping, not pooping on the potty. And I thought that was your experience. Um, and other uh, and and pooping is is a very difficult for kids. It's a it's a mentally taxing activity. You have to you know feel it, and then you have to go and kind of let something out that oftentimes isn't comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big proponent of kind of later potty training, which is um, you know. Some people like it, some people don't. But I'll admit that one of the downsides of late potty training is kids become very comfortable pooping in pull-ups. You know, they would just mm -hmm. like to get sit in the corner and let it out. I think two two things to mention here. One is if if the child can't control their bowel bladder at an advanced age, like after three, coming up on four, if you try like a diaperless potty training and they're just peeing and they don't even know what's happening, then that's a big warning sign they're constipated because at that age, closer to four, they should be able to feel the urge to pee and let it out and they should definitely know they're peeing again when that when they're peeing and they don't even know they're peeing and that's that reflex in the sacrum that's not even involving the brain um the other is that kids that are hiding the poop or having to go kind of get their own private time to poop that to me says they're a little bit they're thinking about it a little bit too much right it's it's a it's an ordeal for them it's not just a uh, a thing like eating or peeing or sleeping it's it's a stressful event they need mm -hmm. to kind of prepare themselves and get in the right environment and that's a bad sign there are two um specific ways that i've seen that have been published to get children that won't poop on the potty to poop on the potty and if that would be helpful i could definitely summarize those absolutely please yeah so there's a book called the ins and outs of poop by uh, duhamel which is an excellent book. It's a very short, easy read. And and it's kind of like this slow transition. So you take a kid that's like, we have a lot of them that either won't come out of pull-ups or, or out of pull-ups completely, but demand a pull-up to poop and won't go in the mm -hmm. toilet. Um, and he says, okay, fine. You get them pooping regularly in a pull-up. And typically these children need some laxatives for this. And then you kind of slowly transition them and you can follow the logic here. Okay, here's your pull-up. You can poop in it. And then, okay, here's your pull-up. You can poop on it in the bathroom. And here's your pull-up. You can poop on it on the toilet, but you have to be wearing it. 
And then, you know, some kids, they, they, they mentioned you have to literally cut a hole out of the pull-up to make them go because they're so – he has a great story in his book where this little girl was pooping in the potty, but she was so dependent on that diaper, and they, she had never gotten poop on it because it had been so long because it cut a hole in it that it was a tattered belt, and it apparently didn't want to buy any more diapers. So she kept on – she'd have to put the belt on. It was like a ritual <laughs> to get her to poop. So that's this kind of slow and steady approach, and then there's a – there's a sink or swim approach, which is developed by Dr. Dom, who, who tragically passed a couple of years ago. But he, he would use a high-dose X-lax, and he would say, okay, we're going to overwhelm this urge because if the urge comes on slowly, as most kids, then they can just squeeze their sphincter and, and put it off. He said, we're going to do three things. We're going to minimize their barriers to pooping, so keep them, keep them unclothed, minimize their distance from the toilet, so keep them near the bathroom. And then we give them a large dose of X-lax. So basically when the when the urge hit them, it was coming, uh, ready or not. And so the child almost always made the decision to go in the toilet because there was no other alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so – and once that happened, even though it sounds a little bit extreme, it would flip a switch in their brain. I've seen it myself several times, and they just – from this holding reflex, they go to a pooping reflex, and that's what you want. Very interesting. We'll have to check out, all of our listeners will have to check out some of those recommendations and tips and tools. If there's a child in your house that is holding and you're just bashing your head against the wall about why, those are those are some really actionable steps to take. And once we've moved out of that preschool, pre-K phase, most of us assume that we've moved past all accidents, including bedwetting. But for some of us, that isn't true. And we touched on this at the very beginning. According to the Census Bureau, there are 43 million U.S. kids aged 10 to 19, which translates to over 800,000 bedwetting teens and tweens, which this statistic in general just breaks my heart because at least when our child is two, three, four or so, they might not remember the embarrassment of having an accident at night or the shock or who saw it or whatnot but teens can. <laughs> and so can you fill us in on some of the reasons for bedwetting in older children? Yeah. And so the, keep in mind that bedwetting is multifactorial. So that's why you see so many things kind of working in some people. So um, if you're making a lot of urine, abnormal amounts of urine, then it's going to contribute, right? Your bladder is more likely to squeeze if you're, if you're, if you're making too much urine. So if you're drinking a lot, but a common cause is um, sleep apnea. Uh, which can make you have a diuresis. And so some kids go to get their tonsils out and they'll see some maybe temporary improvement. It's not a 100% cure, but um, sleep apnea is something to consider. Um, and then there's genetic variations in terms of how much um, rectal dilation from this delayed pooping will affect your bladder. Some kids need just a, just a tiniest amount of rectal dilation sets their bladder off. Others need significant amounts of rectal dilation. And as you develop more mature pooping patterns, if you're letting out poop on time, hopefully, um, then you may have these resolution at different ages, you know, and some people um, may never develop normal, normal pooping patterns, so we have to help them a lot. And so I think that the thing that tricks families, they see different kids. Well, my kid did an alarm, my neighbor's kid did an alarm and they were better, you know, and so my kid just, when they went through puberty, they got better. You have to focus on on the facts that that something is setting off this void that never gets to the brain, and so okay, we can make it better with some meds. Maybe we can make it better by limiting fluids. But to really get that reflex turned off, we have to address the the rectal dilation. And getting an X ray will will diagnose that. And and I say that like it's a simple thing. 
you actually have to get the x-ray and then have someone look at it that knows what they're looking at. Because unfortunately, most radiologists, although well-trained, don't consider poop abnormal. So you have to have someone that's used to looking at these x-rays, um, which would be like somebody like me um, or a urologist, to give you the right read. And I've heard so many family stories of being kind of brushed aside by physicians, and so it does does get a little upsetting and, and, and tragic. So I, I encourage families to kind of work through this and, and, and get the answers they deserve because bedwetting is not normal and you could cure it at any age. Dr. O'Regan, who was the father of kind of all my research, he started all this field of research, cured his own son at four. And so it's never really um, too young other than, you know, a baby in a crib where you can address this topic uh, and get them dry and build their confidence. Sure. And we talked in the beginning, you know, about trying to remove, you know, maybe the parental emotion away from the situation and try to look at those facts. But, but the fact of the matter is that it is an emotional thing, no matter what age your child is. We talked about sleep deprivation, which of course can be very emotional, but also just that you care about your kid and you don't want them to be going through their whole life like this. Um, and of course, so much of our kids' reaction um, is what we react to the situation. Yeah. You never want kids to feel shamed or like there's mm -hmm. something wrong with them, especially when it is a reflex or can be a reflex situation like we've been talking about. So how should we be talking about accidents and bedwetting at home? I'd love for you to give us maybe some kind of tips or scripts, examples for a younger child and an older child. Yeah, I think my script is pretty, pretty um, consistent for all ages. Um, I adapt it, obviously, for my, my audience and what they can understand. But I, I like to focus on two things, what they can control and what they can't control. And so starting with what they can control is I say – I tell them when they're leaving the clinic, this is your one job. This is all you got to do. If you feel like you have to poop, you have to go right away, okay? So because that's kind of the opposite of what started the problem, which is delayed pooping. So that I give them, give them that order, and they're usually pretty good on that. And um, sometimes I'll use the anecdote that the average – if they know what a mammal is, the average mammal poops in 12 seconds, right? Most kids are pooping in 12 hours, it seems like. So I get them to focus on going when they feel it, and it, it should go quick and easy, and that's something actionable for them. And then the what they shouldn't worry about, what they can't control, I really focus on the fact that this is kind of part of their makeup, you know, I, um, I, I compare it to my office because I'm a urologist with stones a lot of times. You know, kids come off they have kidney stones, and it's a genetic problem, and you'd be surprised how many kids have stones, and they probably drink as much as their classmates, right? They're not they're not doing anything wrong. They just – they had a normal diet. They have a normal intake, and they just form kidney stones, so it's kind of not fair. They have to drink way more than mm. your average kid to prevent these stones, and they have to really limit their diet to not get these stones, and so – it's not right or wrong. It's just kind of everyone's got to cross the bear. And unfortunately, for some kids, there's a, something difficult like this, but can, which can be hard even for adults, you know, to limit um, their diet in certain ways. So I try to focus on on those components, and hopefully that makes them feel better about it, and that um, really push the it's not their fault component because I see parents getting frustrated. I mean, I mean, I've been there, and so really try to remind them that they're doing the they're doing. Um, they're doing the best they can. Their body is doing it without their knowledge when they went to bed. 
Sure. Those are good things for us to keep in mind and good things for us to kind of regurgitate to our kids when they're going through these hard situations, because obviously they don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night in an unpleasant situation either. So thank you so much for that. Um, This was so informative. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, but we do need to wrap up. I'd love to know if you have some kind of top tip or best parent advice for kids who have nighttime accidents in conclusion. Yeah, I have a, I, I give everyone a three-step program that it works for everyone. Um, you know, at some point it says, I'm not going to make it sound easy. You have to get, you have to work through it. Um, and, and keep in mind that throughout the three-step program, you can always be doing the bedwetting alarm in the background because of, the alarm is kind of ancillary. And the first step is addressing the bowel issue. Um, I promise you, if your child is otherwise healthy and wetting the bed, they have a component of rectal dilation, or you can call it constipation. You can get an x-ray and get that diagnosed, and then you can treat that. It's frustrating, I realize, because parents may buy into it and say, okay, my kid is constipated, and then give, give their child laxatives for a month and say he's been pooping great, he's still wetting the bed. Then that's when you go back to the x-ray and say, look, you know, we haven't we haven't made a made a dent in the x-ray. You know, it's just it's tough. So just because constipation is number one cause bed wetting doesn't mean it's easy to fix. It can it can be onerous. And we have a whole variety of programs we've used uh, to get kids empty. As long as you focus on the prize, which is getting them dry, or if they're not dry, check the x-ray and then modify your program, you will get there. Some people can't do that, or they need extra help, or they want to get dry a little faster. So you can add medications. That's the second step. These medicines will either make the urine um, output less at night or make the bladder hold more urine at night so they can be drier sooner. It does cover up the problem. So if you were to stop these medicines, they would wet the bed again. But to a child that's dry, you know, they don't care as long as they're dry, build self-esteem. So I do I do um, offer meds to patients if they want them, keeping in mind that it's not really a long-term cure. The bowel program is the cure. And then if I have an older child that's like about to go to college and they're still wetting the bed and they don't have time to go through all this or they tried it, I do I do have some success with Botox. It sounds crazy, but basically the medicines that allow the urine to bottle hold urine that are given orally are pretty effective, but Botox is much more effective. So if you have a child that's got a time constraint in terms of getting dry, um, it's an expensive and temporary but effective option uh, for bedwetting. Wow. <laughs> My mind is yeah. blown. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but those are great. I mean, like you said, there are three options for solutions. And mm-hmm. I feel like at least one of those three resonates with everybody listening. So we really appreciate that knowing there's hope and there's solutions on the horizon. Um, we really appreciate that. And thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hodges. Thanks so much for having me. I hope it helps uh, some kids. Absolutely. For our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today, and please find more presentations by nationally renowned experts like Dr. Hodges through membership in the Modern Art of Parenting website. Visit modernartofparenting.com to learn more about memberships, which are just $19 a month or $199 for the year with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.